Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, No Bad Dog Army. Hope you guys are well. This is a rock star of a podcast, mainly because this is a question I get all the time and... As you guys know, if you're fans of the podcast and you're avid listeners, you'll know that there's this almost, I don't want to say comical, but there's this textbook type stuff that's happening on the podcast, which is interesting because my job and what I get paid for is for my experiences and my knowledge and the skill sets that I have. And every day I'm getting, I try to get better and every day I'm working on it and every day I'm trying to soak up new information. And so we, if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear this transition of all of a sudden my dog started or when we hit this, you know, and, and, and then my next question, as you guys know, is like, is your dog intact? They say, yes, my dog is intact. Yes, my dog isn't fixed. Yes, my dog still is is intact, right? And it's like this correlation and it happens often and you guys hear it. It's like almost once a week, you guys are hearing, yeah, and then right about this age, boom, we started to get aggressive. Boom, we started to get protective. Boom, we started doing this. And so there is something there and I'm, for me, this podcast is for me as much as it is for you guys, but you're going to pull a lot of information on it. A lot of good stuff in this. Dr. Rihanna Rice is very well-spoken, but also really down to earth, which is why I absolutely love speaking with her because it's like talking to a friend or a cousin or whatever. She's just very down to earth, but she's also very educational and obviously has a degree in um, being a veterinarian, but more specifically, she tries to really target and focus on breeding and, um, things like that. So that's how I met her. You'll hear about it in the podcast, but anyway, this is huge. So you guys can pull a bunch of information from this and I'm going to continue to, um, get people on the podcast that can help further my education of knowing how to help behaviorally with my clients, as well as obviously giving you guys this information. And that's kind of the cool thing about this podcast is, is in my head, um, that's why you don't hear me talk to a bunch of people. You don't hear, you don't hear a ton of guests on this podcast because we get pitched three or four times a day. And I'm not even exaggerating. We get, Taylor sends me emails like, you know, a possible guest on the no bad. And I'm like, nah, nah, nah. I'm not going to just put people on here that's going to put you guys to sleep, It'd be make you tired. And same thing for me. I want to really be into it. And 
it's something that I really want to know to help me continue to get better at what I do and help my craft. So it's kind of a selfish thing. But I guess my point is, is you guys get the benefit of me saying like, hey, I want to talk to leading professionals in their field about these specific things that I know will help you guys out at home as well as my career. So uh, it was a pleasure having her on. I really appreciate it, uh, Dr. Rihanna Rice, if you're listening. Also, really quick, you guys, we are completely sold out of the working spots for Force Mickey and my, of course, Tom Davis seminar coming up next month at the end of May. I'm super stoked about it. If you guys aren't familiar and you don't know about it, click the link below. This is a once-in-a-lifetime type of seminar. There is audit spots left where you guys can come and watch. Again, this is me and my friend Force Mickey teaming up for the weekend to be working with dogs from all over the country coming in. It's going to be pretty freaking epic. I'm super stoked on it. Like I said, if you guys want to come and watch, take notes, ask questions, be part of the energy that's going to be created next month. I'm, I'm super stoked on it. And it's going to be the only seminar I'm doing at my facility likely this year. Uh, so, and I think it's the only seminar force is doing publicly as well. So anyway, get your tickets in the link below guys. Super stoked on that. Don't forget at the end of the podcast, I'm going to be answering three of your dog training questions. If you want me to answer your specific dog training questions, all you guys have to do is go to the iTunes review chart, leave your review, and I'll answer them. I answer three at the end of every podcast. So make sure you listen to the end. And most importantly, sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, cool. So let's just, we can get started. We can dive right into it. So why don't you just tell the people who you are and where you're at and then I'm going to go through all the important questions that I have for you and the things that I selfishly want to know. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Yeah. My name is Rihanna Rice. I'm a small animal veterinarian based out of Stillwater, Minnesota, which is a suburb that is just east of the Minneapolis, St. Paul area. I've been a veterinarian for about 10 years now. I only see cats and dogs. And I have um, an interest in canine reproduction, so I do more of that um, than most general practitioners. And I, I deal with intact patients, meaning um, dogs and cats, well, dogs that haven't been spayed or neutered uh, into their kind of growth phase of maturity more than most people. And went to the University of Minnesota, which is the local vet school here. So that's just a little bit about my background. Perfect. That's exactly Perfect. Awesome. So yeah, to give context to people who are listening, uh, Dr. Rihanna Rice and I met when we were shooting a pilot for the Outdoor Channel. And it's it's now on my YouTube channel. It's called A Dog's Destiny. And so we met because we were working with some golden retriever breeding uh, facilities. And um, we went out there and we did artificial, what would you call it? Like artificial insemination? Yep, Is that what it was? Yeah, artificial insemination. Yeah, what we call a side-by-side artificial insemination. Yeah. So that's how we met. So, so really what I want to dive into is every, here's how it goes for me. Okay. So I, somebody call, you know, I do phone consults, basically exactly how it sounds. People sign up for my phone consultation service and we chat. Here's how it's been going almost, I would say close to every day, like really close to every day. This is how it goes. It's like, Hey, Tom, this is, um, you know, I'll talk about my dog Ruger today. You know, Ruger has been great. He loves, he, you know, when he was a puppy, he loved other dogs. He loves kids. And then 
all of a sudden, the reason why I called you is because his behavior started to change. He's starting to become reactive. He's starting to become aggressive. He's really starting to become leash reactive on the leash. And it's it's pretty much that scenario. And then the next question I ask is, is the dog fixed or not fixed? And they say, no, he's not fixed. We're waiting or we're not doing it or we haven't yet, whatever. So for me, I left my St. Bernard who lived until he was 12 years old to be intact. And I think a lot of his, even when he was 12 and going through some sort of complications, he basically got pneumonia and all that stuff. And, but the veterinarians that I was working with were so surprised and so impressed with his orthopedic structure of being a 12 year old St. Bernard. He looked and felt and acted like a five year old. It was amazing. Anyway, so I think we'll we'll talk about the benefits that you've seen or the benefits that we know about in your field. But I just wanted to set the tone for you to let you know that that's what I've been hearing and seeing, which is why I've been nagging you to to hop on here and explain to me a little bit more about, I guess my question to you is, is we talk about like, do you feel like the sexual maturity of an adult dog or a maturity of a dog is the same as like their behavioral maturity how does that typically work and what ages do we see dogs hit this kind of i'm a man now or i'm a a full woman now where where do we see this start to happen at what age yeah that's a that's a good question and actually i have a question for you that's kind of related and will help me answer is there a particular well first of all are we when you when you kind of um indicated what sorts of calls you're getting for these consultations is it is it more often male dogs or is it yes. female dogs as well? Okay, um, and is there any particular age for you that owners are reporting these kinds of behaviors? Usually between eight months to a year, so eight, eight to twelve months okay. is is, and it's like clockwork. I'm not even. I mean, I I wouldn't make a whole podcast about it if I didn't think is like, okay. And I want to know more. That's the thing is I want to know more. I know my listeners will. So that's, what's been happening. It's like, okay, got it. Clockwork. Okay. Got it. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a little bit breed dependent as far as physical maturity when they stop growing. Uh, you know, the example you gave of your own personal dog being a St. Bernard, those dogs are going to reach full physical maturity a little bit later in life, more on the order of probably 18 months. But most dogs are going to reach that point somewhere between 9 and 12 months of age um, is where they really stop growing. And there certainly are potentially benefits to leaving that endocrine or hormonal system intact um, up until that point. Um, You're probably honestly getting a little bit more accuracy of reporting those behavioral concerns because of the nature of your work. I mean, certainly we have people, clients that that start expressing that concern as well. And it usually is around that same time frame. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. I would say kind of that nine months to 18 months of age um, is, is where we're, we're getting that reported based on just kind of the circumstance. It kind of depends on who's in and out of that person's house. It depends Mm. on what other animals that they're around, you know, all those sorts of things. And I, I think people are a little less likely probably to come to a vet with 
is simply a behavioral issue than they are to obviously ask you as a trainer. So I think sometimes we're getting a little bit of a delay because people won't necessarily go out of their way to go to the vet or call the vet for a behavioral reason. That's not to say they don't, they do, but they tend to wait until there's something else going on, whether it's an illness, injury, they're due for vaccines, and then they'll mention it in hindsight. Mm-hmm. So you probably are getting a little bit better information on the time frame than I am, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. Because I think that's what the first thing people do is they, and, th- and this, and again, it's like this famous last or this famous line of all of a sudden. And so I think, yeah, people are going to reach out to somebody who specializes in behavior or just a trainer in general when they start to see these behavioral shifts or it starts to concern them. But it's like yeah, all of a sudden, and and to me, the way that I explain it is it's not really all of a sudden. Your dog's just becoming who they are. Or your dog's becoming an adult. Right? Does that make does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Because we, t- I think we talked about this before. You're rarely going to see any sort of behavioral issue, especially along the lines of aggression, until they reach that point. They just, um, you know, it's the kind of that sexual maturity, physical maturity point that that's when you're going to see that side of them. It's we rarely deal with any sorts of issues or have owners report that um, prior to that. So it's it's almost kind of like you know, to human teenagers, their behavioral change, they get behavior changes as they go through puberty as well um, and tend to act different during that transition than they would even before or after. So it's kind of that same time frame. obviously just much younger for dogs because they don't live as long as we do. Right. And okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's, that's just been happening. Like, and, and that's the way I explain it. I said, well, here, don't be too devastated. Don't be too concerned. Because it's not all of a sudden, it's just your dog is growing up and your dog is starting to become who they actually are, which, you know, usually some dog owners take it one way or the other. But I think you're right about normally what I see is it's very breed specific too. It's usually like the larger, more protective breeds, the guardianship type breeds. So some of the shepherds, definitely the Corso has been, been, I think Corsos is a breed that's becoming very popular. That is very, I don't think you should be a novice handler or a dog owner no. when you're owning the, some of those really guardianship type dogs. So, well, let's let here, I want to dive into this a little bit and then we'll go into more of the kind of the hormones and what's going on. What do you think about, uh, what's the benefit? And I know we've talked about this before and there's so much research out there and, um, so maybe just an update. Has there been any updated changes in research showing the benefits of keeping your dog intact, either male or female? And if so, what have what have what's the vet field been finding? As far I'm sorry, the phone cut out for just a second. As far as benefits of leaving them intact for a certain period of time, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's still um, it's a very frustrating answer. It depends, um, and we're still learning more about that. So the benefits seem to depend a little bit on the breed. There are more benefits for some breeds than others. As an example, leaving Rottweilers intact beyond that phase of sexual maturity and physical maturity, um, that's a breed that's very prone to bone cancer, and they are statistically a lot less likely to get that if they are left intact during that time frame and beyond that time frame. Whereas Vishlas, um, as kind of the opposite example, they're prone to something called mast cell tumors. That's a type of skin cancer, essentially. And the opposite was found to be the case 
with them as far as the age of sterilization that actually sterilizing them earlier, like around six months of age, seem to have a protective effect. So there are these breed differences, but generally speaking, um, there do seem to be some overall health benefits for leaving them intact a little bit longer than we used to recommend. And when I say we, I'm I'm meaning Mm -hmm. as a profession, and this was prior to my entrance into it 10 years ago, it used to just be standard that, you know, at six months of age, if not beforehand, um, especially in the case of rescue organizations, humane societies, that they would be sterilized prior to that. Um, There's a lot of data coming out of Europe where animals aren't routinely, um, companion animals are not routinely spayed and neutered necessarily and certainly at that age to where um, as far as some growth and development things and, and certain other uh, things that breeds are are predisposed to there there seems to be some benefits to that and so when when people ask me that same question um, I well for females I make sure that they're very clear on what a heat cycle entails mm-hmm. um, because a lot of that <laughs> that benefit is letting them go through a heat cycle cycle specifically and a lot of people understandably don't know what to expect as far as the duration of that and that they need to be careful about letting their dog out unattended and things like that during that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, for males, um, it's a very similar conversation, except for obviously we don't have a heat cycle to contend with, but the qualifier is if you are having behavioral issues, that would be an indication to not necessarily wait on this, not necessarily wait until they're a year and a half old before you make that decision. Now, Got it. If you, two things on that is actually three things. Sorry. So going back to the Rottweiler Vishla thing. So for my listeners or dog owners out there, so it's fair to say that there's some stats coming back on health benefits or even not benefits to having your dog intact or fixed. And so you would say for the dog owners out there to, if they're getting a purebred dog to, to, the the breeder should be kind of giving you the guidelines of this is what this is what this breed or this genetic or this is what we recommend over the years is that fair to say to to do kind of i mean not every breed has been studied so the breeder might not necessarily know because we don't have the information um but in for for most breeds i would say actually that we don't have like as just they started with Vislas and Rottweilers, and there's actually a lifetime study that is currently ongoing called, um, well, it's run by the Morris Foundation out of Colorado. That's on golden retrievers. Um, that's still in process. That so we're getting some really good data on that because those animals are looked at throughout the course of their entire lives. And there's a lot of things Goldens are predisposed to. So, it, you know, the breeder, just to be perfectly frank, may or may, or may not have that information. Mm. Certainly, anecdotally, they can provide information on what they see um, from, from their lines and from the dogs that they're putting out there, because there are, even though there are things that breeds are predisposed to certain lines with them, certain breeds are more predisposed than others. Um, but ultimately what I end up telling people, once I explain, you know, the sorts of things that they're looking for behavior wise in males and what a heat cycle entails, do what's right in your household in light of that. Now that you know that basic information is usually the best that I can guide somebody if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Definitely does. Makes total sense. So people who are listening, um, if you do have a reputable breeder that's been breeding for years and they have data for years, it, it's not going to hurt to ask them what their suggestion is. And in fact, oftentimes they'll put in their 
uh, agreement, I guess, of the do's and don'ts of this breed. Because they, I mean, let's face it, they probably know their genetics better than the dog owner who just bought the dog, which makes sense. Absolutely. So you said something interesting I wanted to touch on. You said something along the lines of if your dog is exhibiting aggression starting this sexual maturity time frame, you, you're saying at that point it's prob- the juice isn't worth the squeeze for maybe some of the benefits because you're already starting to see maybe some flaws of keeping your dog in talk- intact, depending on the breed, of course. So you're saying yep. at that point, once you start to see that aggression, maybe it would be a, a, a better idea instead of waiting out to get the dog fixed at that point, once you start to see some of this problematic stuff. Is that right? Yes. And that, again, it's the really frustrating. It kind of depends on what's going on. It depends on how frequently it is, the severity of the behavior. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, just to be quite frank, the bite risk for the people around the dog. I mean, that's definitely a consideration every time, anytime you've got right. behavior like that. And sometimes, too, it's something that maybe doesn't have like a health risk for people, but it's it's causing issues in the household. Like we're, we're urine marking in the house mm. and we weren't doing that before, you know, which for some people understandably can be a deal breaker as well. So that's where it comes down to individual conversation with that owner of how much of an issue is this for you? Um, but certainly I think it's reasonable anytime you're having any sort of behavioral issue like that to say like, this is maybe a time where we do want to just um, jump the gun, I guess, so to speak, and not necessarily let this animal get to the age that we were originally planning on for sterilization before we move forward with that, since we're already seeing these issues. Yeah. And I think it would be, again, pretty breed specific too, because I think if you're, again, let's just talk about the Rottweiler, for example, you get a large, um, I like to say pushy, (laughs) kind of a pushy, uh, let me take advantage of who I can type of dog. Um, and again, this is just generally speaking, not everybody's Rottweiler like this. I've seen, I've seen them not be, but generally they are. And let's say there's certain things that are going to be inevitable regardless of the dog being intact or not because of their breed. So if you get a dog that starts to be a little pushy, that's probably breed specific to that particular dog and becoming an adult male or female. But if you're starting to, and I guess what I'm trying to do is split hairs a little bit on you. And if you're, but if you're starting to see danger, what you're saying is the dangerous behaviors of like a bite risk or the dog actually trying to go out. Cause I think there's a difference between a dog, a dog's hackles going up and kind of, you know, alert barking versus a dog trying to like kill things. Right. Those are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And breed, I'm glad you brought that up because breed is a huge component of that. If we're talking about a lab, this is a different conversation. Right. Than like you said, a Rottweiler, because that's not behavior you typically associate with labs. And you might have other issues beyond just puberty with that animal if that's what they're doing at mm. that point. But yeah, absolutely. The breed um, is important to the context of that conversation. Yeah. So that's something that I just want to, in my experience, just with behavioral type of stuff that I'm talking about with my clients is, you know, I had this funny quote that I did. I was working with this Rottweiler that had very bad impulse control because the owners just let it do whatever it wants. And then boom, it became an adult and now they can't stop it. So I said, I said, everybody wants a Rottweiler until a Rottweiler starts doing Rottweiler shit. And that's pretty much what ended up happening is this dog kept like pushing, like just pushing and pushing and pushing the boundaries. So I guess my point is, is people who are listening, just, just be mindful of just what we're saying is, is just because your dog starts to change behaviorally doesn't mean that you should necessarily go out and fix your dog. But if you're, if you're looking at situations that are dangerous and your dog starts to really change for the worse, then that's where maybe getting the dog fixed at that point is warranted. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, if, if we're starting to see that stuff, that, that would be a good indication to reach out to somebody like you as well as a trainer, um, because we as veterinarians receive um, probably not as much education on the behavioral aspect of that as people assume yeah. that we do. Um, so that's where you're going to want to um, also just leverage the other resources that you have, like a reputable trainer like yourself. Yeah, I wanted to interrupt this podcast really, really quick to tell you guys a little bit about the No Bad Dog Official Members Club. If you guys like my YouTube videos and you guys like my dog training tutorials on YouTube, you will love the Members Club. The link is in the description below. It's a $19.99 membership. Um, if you want to support the No Bad Dogs movement and the things that we're doing, you could sign up as well. Uh, but also you have great benefits of full-length dog training tutorials. All the videos that I do on YouTube are 20 minutes, but of course we film for days. So you're getting an hour, hour and change. You're getting unreleased seminar footage. You're getting a lot of stuff in there as well as the No Bad Dog community. And starting next month, I have a surprise for the members club. Um, not only do I go live almost every week, but I also answer your questions. And we are per we are pretty much putting some very proprietary, never released dog training tips that are going to be recorded with my videographer in there as well. So lots of fun stuff going on in there, guys. Again, it's $19.99 a month. Go over, sign up, click the link below, join the members club. I'll see you in there. If you, in your experience, if, if you fix a dog and they, if they have this start, the behavioral change or whatever, have you seen their behavioral change? Has it been worse or better? Or what's, what's your experience? Yeah, it's, you know, it kind of depends on the breed. Typically it does. Um, if it's, if it's a sort of behavior that we don't typically associate with that breed, then yes, typically that, that makes a huge difference. And that's both as far as things like, um, sort of aggressive or territorial behavior and, um, like urine marking. Cause that does mm. end up being a frequent complaint is why I bring it up again as the urine marking a dog that's housebroken, work it up for a urinary issue, doesn't have one. And now it's, it's right. marking its territory in the house. Okay. So another question on that little remark there about that, because this is a question I have in my head all the time is I don't know. And I don't know. And maybe you don't, but if, so is there a certain point after your dog, say your dog is two. And yeah. so we're kind of out of the time frame of maybe the dog becoming fully mature. If your dog is two and you start to see behavioral issues, is that something that if you do fix your dog, they go back to a certain behavior before? I mean, how does that work? Do they have everything already and it's too late or? That's a good question. I mean, the, the, the thing that has been correlated the, the strongest from a study perspective um, with reversion to normal behavior is, well, uh, two things are um, that urine marking and then roaming behavior. If the dog's like going off looking for um, either a fight or a female, then mm -hmm. those are the two things that have the highest correlation um, with reversion back. Um, I would say the cases by and large that were seeing that are aggression related, if that's a concern and they are waiting um, a little bit longer because we didn't start to see it until that point, um, are not, that's not necessarily, I mean, usually it will help it, but it doesn't necessarily get rid of it completely. And a lot of that is either like what I've seen and there aren't a ton of cases again like that, but it's either a breed that you don't normally see that in like a lab or it's a breed that you do. And, and part of it is, it's just being a breed. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some of those instances, you know, I'm not placing blame necessarily, but in some of those instances where it is a breed predisposition, it's, it might be that that dog is not necessarily in the best 
fit for its personality um, can create some issues as well. When people get a breed, obviously we've discussed this before that maybe isn't a huge understanding of, of what that breed is like. Um, that's, I think, you know, in those situations we are seeing that that's probably a component to it. Okay. So, okay. Just to, just so I understand if, if you have a dog that isn't historically in a, an aggressive breed, if you will, like you said, mm-hmm. like a Labrador retriever or a golden retriever, whatever, and then they start to have some aggressive behavior, things start to happen. Fixing them is probably going to help. But yes. if you have a dog that maybe, like you said, it, and again, again, by, by large, this is such, such breed dependent. But if you have a dog that is, is more prone to be aggressive and pushy and um, whatever we want to call it, then fixing them may help, but it's not as significant as, as if it was a breed that's really not historically aggressive. Correct. Okay. And have you had any experiences with this making things worse? Cause I've heard some of my clients say that where they said, we, we actually didn't see any, so it's the opposite. So that's where it really throws me off. I'm like, wait a minute. Some, some of my clients, actually one of my clients earlier, um, last week said that, that they said, after we fixed our dog, we saw the, the big behavioral change. Have you seen or heard anything on that in your experience? I wouldn't say I've seen a big correlation with that. In you know, if, if we're talking about a dog that was neutered at six months of age, and then they get to a point, you know, at like a year of age where they're starting to have issues, um, sometimes we'll see that. But a dog that reached physical and sexual maturity prior to neuter was then neutered and then started to have issues. I mean, unless there's some sort of change in that household that's maybe affecting that, either a subtraction of somebody in addition of maybe another dog or something like that. We typically don't see that, or at least not that people are reporting to me. And one thing I do want to mention to you before I forget, just so people um, have a good management of their expectations, is that when you do neuter, it does take four to six weeks Mm. um, for those hormones to be out of the system. So just so people know that piece of it, not saying that's why people are seeing this is because they're not waiting that amount of time, but just so they know it's not necessarily an instant fix. I mean, I have people say like, oh yeah, right afterwards they stopped peeing in the house or their behavior was a lot better, but really it's, it's that six to eight or the four to six week time frame. Okay. That makes sense. I'm glad you mentioned that because I would have forgot to ask that. That's a very good point. And I know that that's going to come up in conversations. So it's not an immediate thing. Right. Okay. Now, okay. Let's, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about what, when we fix, so let's say we have a dog and we fix them at uh, 11 months, right? So they're hitting that maturity. We fix them. What? What, what are we taking away other than obviously the testicles of the dog or if, if it's a female, it's obviously different, but what do we, what do we, what, what happens? I mean, what are we taking away in the dog's maturity or whatever? Does that make sense? Um, I think, I mean, are you talking about like hormonally? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we're removing for a male dog, we're removing testosterone. Um, Completely? For a female, we're, uh, yes. If you are castrating that dog, so if you are neutering that dog, um, taking the testicles, you are completely removing the testosterone wow. from it. Yeah. I didn't and know so that. I, yep. So um, I have never performed a vasectomy. Um, I have had a couple of people call and ask for a clinic if we do that. Um, and I, I just had never have um, that. Like if, if you were to do that, 
um, you would still be leaving the testosterone. The animal just wouldn't be able to get anyone pregnant right. um, would be the difference there. And this is kind of an obscure example. But when we were in vet school, they were telling us um, there's a zoo right next to the vet school. And one of the large animal practitioners at the, the University of Minnesota is, is like the zoo vet. And that they leave the lions there. They can they they do vasectomies on the lions, so they still maintain the characteristics that people want to see, the big mane and things like that. Um, so like if you were to do a procedure like that, you would be leaving the testosterone. But if you take the testicles out, you are completely removing that. Wow. See, I wasn't sure like how that works. So completely gone. Even if they're like the way that I th- kind of think of it in my head almost is like even if they're set, like even if the dog is is fully sexually mature and you re- and you get the dog completely neutered it takes away everything that they had it as does. far as testosterone wow okay it does what about like adrenaline and the cortisol type of hormones and things going on does that decrease or go away what happens with that as far as i'm aware there are no changes in the other uh hormonal cascade Wow. So it's just testosterone. It is just testosterone. Okay. That's, that's really great to know. That's really great to know. So, okay. So testosterone, so behaviorally speaking, so let's take a step forward. So now we have an intact male that is starting to become, let's say reactive or, um, behaviorally starting to look aggressive on the leash all of a sudden to other dogs. What Mm -hmm. does, do you, do you have any knowledge about what testosterone does when they see another dog what is it does it make them more competitive i've heard does it make them more protective do you have any background on what that physically does to the dog when they start to become aggressive yeah i you know i admittedly nowhere during my my formal education did they discuss that specifically but um, I think it's reasonable just knowing um, more about that hormone and the sorts of things that we do see behaviorally. That is probably a combination of things, or it has the potential to be a combination of things. That it's, you know, part of it is I think competition. I mean, ultimately, it's it's a sex hormone. So you have to think of it in terms of like, okay, if this animal is going to reproduce, that's what's ultimately driving that. And so part of it, um, I think, is just. Mm-hmm. Um, making them seem like the more dominant animal compared to another one so that they could then go on to be a mate. Um, so a lot of it, I think, is competition-driven um, and just that ability to, to use that testosterone to reproduce is where a lot of that is coming from, um, whether that manifests as aggression towards other dogs or increased interest in females. Marking their territory is a, is a competition sort of behavior, and there doesn't even need to be another animal in the house. Sometimes it's you know, it, they're, they're just doing it, um, as you know, and it's just other people in there, but ultimately it comes down to like, if they were to reproduce, this is the sorts of things that they would be doing to ensure the chances of that are going to be higher. If that makes sense. It does. It totally does. And that's where you're going to get intact males to historically not like each other. Correct. Okay. That makes sense because it, I do, I have had a couple clients actually, have intact males and they get along, which is odd, but it's been very, I think, like I said, breed specific. And in this case, it was Goldens is another group of Goldens and the males were all fine. I mean, me, I'm like having a nervous breakdown. I'm like, this, this is not good. Something's going to happen, but they were all fine and they were all mature intact males. And I was, that was like the only time I have personally seen intact males be okay 
with each other and not fight. So again, yeah, and I will say that I, you know these these people are of course very careful about this, but I do work with a number of people where they have you know breeding operations. That's what they do, um, and that they don't have issues either um, among their males. Of course, it's not like they're like, oh, let's just put them in a kennel together by themselves unattended for ten hours. You know, they're not doing things that would trigger that. But I do have you know work with a lot of people where that you'd think, um, knowing the number of dogs that they have and that are on their property and what they're doing with them, that they would be coming in at least occasionally with like issues with bite wounds or something and they're not so i do i think part of that is just um you know them knowing how to kind of mitigate that stuff but but i guess to your point i mean some sometimes especially breed specific you don't you don't see that to the same degree and so the example i'm thinking of well both goldens and labs actually goldens and labs yeah and and again it's probably a crapshoot on why this happens but just genetically speaking they're they're more probably competitive with the sport that they're in than they are their territory. Yes. Right. So they're like, I just want to work. I want to, I want to go out and, you know, uh, whatever. So some behavioral changes too, just, just as kind of a side note. Um, and, and all of that was really, really helpful. So thank you for that because I mean, that, that gives me a lot more knowledge moving forward with my clients. So some things that I've seen just with my personal dogs, like my, when my St. Bernard was intact and then my female, uh, shepherd was intact. I mean, he would, wouldn't eat. He was just, he just wanted to mate, 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 mate. That's all he wanted to do. How does just in correlation with, we're talking about the differences in behavior with males being fixed or not fixed in the maturity. How does this correlate to females? Is this, do you, do you see the aggression in the females or, or not so much? Not so much. I mean, no, not usually because we're dealing with estrogen and, and well, mostly with progesterone, but estrogen to some degree as well. Um, and you just don't, it's, it's a hormone that, um, when you, you know, I always go back when I'm trying to understand something, I think about like, you kind of remove like modern society and kind of think about just, just the basics of that, that species being able to propagate itself and what are the advantages to certain behaviors on behalf of both of those sexes? Cause that's ultimately what's driving this. And there really isn't an advantage to females engaging in that kind of behavior. Mm. Um, and they don't tend to now, I, I will say I have people report when I'm dealing with, with breeding dogs. So you are probably aware of this. The audience might not be, but just so they are, bitch is pro- professional jargon for an intact female dog. <laughs> and so, but people will joke like, but they're, they're being serious. They're like, my dog gets really bitchy, mm-hmm. like when she's in season. And so they'll, they'll, you know, kind of indicate that there are some mood things going on, but usually not to the degree where they're like, oh, now there's a bite to a person or to another dog that just their demeanor is a little bit different, a little moodier, I guess, if I can use that word without it sounding, yeah, yeah, you know, sexist applied to like us or something like that. But that's more what people report with intact females. It's not like what we're dealing with with males. So there are some behavioral things. It just looks very, very different if it exists at all. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. So really, if we kind of isolate the problem, not problems, but we isolate the behavioral changes with keeping male dogs intact. You might see it at that maturity age and, um, you might just see, and, and kind of what we were saying in the beginning is just making sure that you're prepared that if you're, if you're Corso or your Rottweiler or your large German, just any, any dog really starts to become 
their behavioral starts to change and their behavior starts to change because they are intact. Because for me, what I weighed out was longevity over behavior. So my St. Bernard at like age four and a half to five stopped liking dogs. Just nope, done. And this was a dog that went went to work with me every day and was around a lot of dogs and I never really had any, really any like questions about like if if he was going to be okay or not until he did. And then he just like hit this switch where it was, that was it. So in my head, I'm like, well, again, he's very healthy. So I kept him intact. And I, and I think with his diet and keeping him intact is what helped him live a long, healthy life. Um, but anyway, so I, I guess just kind of recapping on the things that we talked about and then with females. So just as a side note question on females staying intact, do you find that they become, cause we, cause one of the things that I get all the time is, um, my breeder told me to keep my dog intact because it, it makes them stronger and their bones get bigger. Do you have any, I know you, we talked about cancer a little bit and, and some breeds being more susceptible to cancers. Have, have you seen any correlation or any type of, um, uh, studies showing that dogs bones and their growth plates, et cetera, becoming stronger, if they if they become fully sexually mature before you fix them, that, that is sense. a good question. So yeah, that and that is the, the I would say that's the most common sort of like misconceived benefit to keeping a dog intact. We mm. don't have any evidence that that's actually correct with the growth plates itself. Now, but the growth plates are can be related a little bit to the angulation of joints. So, and this is kind of nitpicking a little bit, but technically they haven't found really any direct correlation with the growth plates. However, there are several breeds where um, there is a statistical correlation between being kept intact to sexual maturity and um, cranial cruciate ligament or ACL mm. um, is the, the term that most people know that by ACL tears. So dogs that are um, that stay intact to sexual maturity are less likely um, to tear their ACL. And that is a very common orthopedic injury, by the way, um, across all breeds. Um, but th- th- that's less likely to happen in an animal that's going to be kept intact for a little bit longer. So there's that correlation. One thing I do want to mention too, that I should have kind of qualified one of my earlier statements with, as far as breed specifics, the thing with females, that's a little bit different. The two things, um, as far as how long they're left intact for, there are two things that regardless of the breed, they are at risk for increased risk for if they are kept intact. And so where it's a little bit more of a consideration, um, for, for spaying, especially if we're talking about spaying at all versus leaving them intact, which sometimes is a conversation, but, um, the longer they are intact, the more likely they are to get mammary carcinoma, breast cancer, in other words. Mm. And, um, they, they can also get um, something called a pyometra, which is just the technical term for a uterine infection. Um, that uterine infection is actually driven by progesterone, so which is what the ovaries are making. So that's a consideration in females regardless. I do tell people, honestly, unless you're having behavioral issues, we don't have a lot of medical reasons currently to neuter most male dogs, although most of them from a behavioral perspective, you know, they, they, they don't want the risk or they plan on neutering at some point. But for females, regardless of the breed, there are reasons to spay them. Okay. And what age would you safely say? And I, and I know just everyone listening in, in our conversation, obviously, is it's so breed dependent. What age is like a safe age for a female to 
to to get fixed in your yeah i would say so there's a, yeah there's a lot of data about like going through the first heat cycle letting them do that and so i you know i think that that's a good recommendation for that and first heat cycle is usually only going to take place somewhere between 10 and 14 of age for most dogs um for most dog breeds sometimes the giant breed dogs will go through heat a little bit later in life for the first time um but you're you're really decreasing your risk of both of the things i just mentioned um if you only go through one heat cycle um both mammary carcinoma or breast cancer and this uterine infection very uncommon to see mm. those manifest in a dog that's only gone through one heat cycle but that way you're really mitigating the risk quite a bit because the risk for well the risk for a uterine infection always exists as long as you've got the ovaries specifically which sounds strange but the ovaries are producing the progesterone that can cause some cysts to form in the uterus itself that make it more prone to infection so it's actually a different reproductive organ that's driving that 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 risk of uterine infection mm -hmm. um although it's it's common in this country to take both the ovaries and the uterus so it's a moot point but in europe they usually just take the ovaries and, and strangely enough there's nothing wrong with that as far as mitigating your risk of uterine infection but i think a good balance is one heat cycle um so that you're cutting down on that risk of of mammary carcinoma because it's only about an increase it's about an eight percent increased risk with one heat cycle but it goes up significantly from there okay well, that's good information it sounds like europe's doing all sorts of different stuff with the with dogs i mean just than we are yes. so that's you think they're ahead or behind like in what that's a good question um because i know you mentioned a couple times they're doing like some different stuff that's kind of cool yeah yeah i mean i think Honestly, I think in some ways they're a little bit ahead. I mean, and I, why I say that is um, like with, the, for instance, an ovariectomy. So that's where you just take the ovaries and there's no reason to take the uterus medically, but it's just what we do here. It's just convention in this country. It's as simple as that as far as that's mm. why we do that sterilization the way that we do it, but Europe doesn't do it that way. And um, they're actually, this is kind of, well, it's related and that we're talking about dogs, but something that I think is a good thing um, is that they're also in Europe. You can't really do surgical modifications to the aesthetic of the dog anymore. Like you're not supposed mm. to take the dew claws off. You're not supposed to dock the tails. You're not supposed to crop the ears. Um, and although there might be some original purpose sort of arguments for dogs that have those modifications, I, for the most part, I think it's a good thing to get away from those. Um, just for the, the dog itself. So there, um, that's changed a lot too. That's obviously not what we're talking about, but it is a significant difference between Europe and, and the U S really. So is it, a, is that what you're saying? It's illegal to, to it's do... illegal. Okay. Yeah. It's illegal there. Interesting. And was, is that a new, newer law? I don't know how new it is. I mean, in my professional lifetime, that's been the case, which has been 10 years because we have really? clients that will import dogs um, from Europe. And if it's a dog that has a tail dock here, it has a full tail. If it's a dog that has a crop, ear crop, it has ears. Um, and if we're modifying, because we, the practice that I work at, we do do, we don't do ear cropping, but we do tail docks and we do um, do claw removal. If that breeder knows that a particular animal is going to be exported to Europe, um, we cannot alter that one. Wow. Now, just curiosity, uh, I know I've worked with over the years, different dogs who have been docked and cropped and whatever. And it's by the time they get to me, uh, I can't put it back. So what do you want me to do about it? You know? So, right. but I, but I, I have seen 
I think just breed specific dogs. I think it's a, it's a, it's kind of like a history of that's why they do it. I know, I think it was the boar bull, which was interesting. The boar bull uh, being a South African mastiff, they originally started docking their tails because the had something to do with monkeys. Like monkeys would reach down and grab their tails and like try to rip them off or something with the, with the boar bulls being harassed or, ripped apart by monkeys or something so anyway who who knows what if that's true or not um is there any phys i mean just as a side note is there any breeds out there that would physically need docking or ear cropping to be healthier in general i don't i don't think so i mean we're where i've heard that as well and i i have to be honest in saying that i can't think of specifically the breeds, although like a Briard comes to mind, like some of these more guarding herding breeds is that there's some sort of argument there for, you know, for, as a, for instance, I think something that a conversation that I've had, have had with an owner that I've heard is that, you know, like if they're protecting the herd, the herd of whatever from a wolf population, that having ears that dangle down is, is potentially a problem. Now, I don't know how true that is. And, you know, most of these animals, now we're not being used for that, even if they are doing mm-hmm. um, herding or guarding work. It's more on a competitive um, level, or if they are actually herding, it's not necessarily in an area that has wolves. So I, I will say I have heard that before, but in most applications of that breed, as far as who owns it and what they're being used for, I don't think it really plays a huge role. But I've definitely yeah. have heard some examples kind of along those similar lines as you. Yeah. Just interesting, you know. I think it's just the uh, things are just there's. I think that there's also like really old school breeders that are just like, hey, this is the way it is, and you know, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. So I think that that's always going to be a thing, especially in the states. So it's like, you know, what are you going to do? Interesting. Well, and I think part of it is just geared too towards, um, you know, buyer expectations. A lot of people just they think that the dew claws are always going to rip or something like that. And so I think a lot of breeders, even though we rarely see injuries, at least with the front dews, a lot of it I think is driven by like, well, this is what people expect, you know, it becomes a vicious cycle sort yeah. of thing too. So Yeah. And I think it's a look thing too. I think if I went to go say I wanted a Doberman because Dobermans are hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I say hilarious, but maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why they started, uh, doing the ears on Dobermans because they weren't serious enough because you take right. the same thing with the Danes. Like you take a, a Doberman or a great Dane and you crop their ears. That's like this very intimidating or at least more intimidating, serious dog. So it's almost, it seems like it's just very cosmetic at this point. Which, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, they look a lot more imposing than, you know, with, with that than without. Yeah. Especially like some of the bully breeds too. Same thing. And, um, you know, I, I don't have a, I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't really care what people do because I'm not going to be able to change what breeders do anyway. So anyway, one other question I want to ask you before I let you go, and I, I so appreciate and value your time, is just in your experience, kind of off the breeding stuff, neurological problems with dogs. I know that it, it's a whole can of worms, and I don't want to really get too granular on it, but when we talk about dogs who start, here's one, here's one, I guess, more granular question. Let's say you get a dog that has never demonstrated any type of aggression ever. They're fixed. The dog has been sweet. And then all of a sudden this dog is attacking either another dog or somebody in the house. No rhyme or reason, no triggers, um, no consistency at 
in, in your experience with working with dogs as much as you do in, in your side of the vet side, it, it's a thing, right? But what is it? I mean, is it retardation? Is it genetics? What have you seen in your experience with this kind of genetical issue? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we do definitely see cases like that, especially like, you know, it's a little bit different conversation if we're talking about like a six or seven year old dog. And I do have a patient that recently um, started doing some things like that. So there are a couple of considerations with that. Um, and, and I probably am not going to be quite as scientific as you were hoping in my answer, <laughs> but no, sometimes we're, sometimes we're suspicious of a brain tumor, to be honest. I mean, now mm. you would kind of expect some other neurologic stuff. Like you wouldn't expect necessarily a dog that you're suspicious of that to have a normal, a normal neurologic exam. As an example, like it might have a head tilt now, or it might, its pupils might not be the same size. Like there's probably going to be something else off about that animal um, to where you're, you know, going to kind of conclude like, okay, this is more of a neurologic issue. This is a medical issue, not purely behavioral. Um, But there certainly are dogs where like, especially if the breed is not one that you see these things in where, I mean, we'll say amongst ourselves, and this is the part where you're going to be like, okay, that's not very scientific. Um, but you know, where I find myself saying with my colleagues, like that dog's just not right in the head. Like there is mm-hmm. something going on, you know, whether they got that from mom or dad or what, you know, they're, they're not wired right yeah. for whatever reason. And that's about as far as we can go with it sometimes, but I've certainly seen, examples of that and sometimes the animal's history is known and sometimes it's not sometimes it's a rescue dog where you don't know anything about you know kind of what could have happened there throughout development but yeah i mean there's definitely times where you're just like i don't know this isn't this don't have like a solid medical reason other than like there just isn't anything anyone can do probably in this particular situation um to to fix this that this is just something about brain chemistry that has gone gone wrong in some way if that makes sense yeah no it does it is so it's it's more of a brain chemistry like almost a screws loose there's something yeah and do you do you see it at a mature is there is there a certain maturity trigger where it's like the dog is great and then at a certain age then you're gonna see this kind of like with humans right and this is a little bit different, but when a human maybe starts to be a bad person and they get into trouble, they run into law enforcement and they just are starting to become not the cute little person they were, right? So this dog all of a sudden starts to make these really bad decisions and they're, like you said, they kind of just got something going on. Is there any age that you would say is the difference? Like you said, if it's a six or seven year old dog, it may be something different i mean do you see any correlation with you're going to see it at an age at this age if it happens do you have any experience with that i think you we can see that i mean i don't have like a hard and fast cutoff but i think that's kind of a like a bimodal distribution is what i would refer to that meaning like if the animal is always like that if it was like that at eight weeks of age that's a consideration in that scenario because you don't typically see that kind of behavior in a puppy. Um, and I would say once we get kind of past what we consider to be sexual and physical maturity for that animal um, and that we're not doing anything that's 
you know, a little bit more breed specific as you give an example of a cane corso. Um, you know, obviously we're going to look at that animal's behavior a little bit differently than we're going to look at a golden retriever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a context there, but I would say once we get past whatever is um, maturity for that animal, where most of them is going to be somewhere between 12 and 24 months of age. So between one and two years of age is when you're kind of like, all right, like, Mm-hmm. really young or we've kind of gotten past that point and then we start to develop some issues and again within the context too of sometimes you know we we at least try to look at it as like were there any changes to the household did something happen in the household right. that the owners may or may not be aware of some physical abuse or you know something like that yeah. um but if you can rule all that out then i would say that's what you're looking at really really young like they've always been that way or we're kind of past that point where we would expect to see something like that crop up as the result of maturity. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's good. It's good information. Cool. All right. Well, Dr. Rihanna Rice, I appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. It's good to catch up and chat again. I appreciate it. Yeah, you are very welcome. And uh, if I need you again, or if I have some more questions to throw at you, um, I'll be in touch. And I, and again, I appreciate it very much for hopping on here and educating my my people about it's one question I get all the time, something I was running into all the time. Now I have a little bit more information. And just so you know, I think one of the biggest things I took away that gave me education that I didn't have any clue was the testosterone. I had no idea that because I thought maybe some of it stayed and then you might as well not fix the dog because they already have it. So that's that was huge for me. So thank you. Yeah, you are very welcome. And it's, it's it sounds like we're not – leaving this conversation with more questions than answers, which is good. That's always the goal, a kind of broad spectrum, even with clients when they come in and, you know, have all these questions too. So any sort of clarification, I mean, there's always going to be unknowns. And when you're you're dealing with a living, breathing organism, it's multifactorial um, environmental considerations, breed considerations, but I'm glad that I was able to, to clarify a few things. Definitely. Thank you so much. Enjoy your rest of your week and, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Tom. All right. Bye. All right, you guys, you've reached the end of the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. We're going to get into your questions. This one is thank you, five-star review from Selena Raven. I love your podcast. My job is an hour from my house and listening to your podcast on the way and on the way home. I listen 30 minutes before the store opens and 30 minutes after the store closes. I wrote a long review before this one asking for specific dog advice, but since then I have worked through it. Thank you for, oh, well, thank you. This is just an awesome review. So thank you so much. Um, I, well, no, we have a question. Here we go. Uh, my only question is, is now how do I turn my dog's heel into a complete focused heel with him glued to my leg? What I would do, it's a process. I have the introduction to that on my YouTube channel with Hawk. It's, I think it's, so go to my YouTube channel type in competitive healing and you'll find, I think I was going to do five episodes, but I only ended up doing two. We're going to do another series on that. Um, when I get a new puppy. Um, so we'll see, but that's what I would do. Okay. Best dog training podcast from a snow 52. Absolutely love the podcast. Thank you, Tom, for providing such great resource for dog owners. Better building a relationship. You're welcome. The question is regarding reactivity. I have a two-year-old hound mix who is previously insecure and reactive to dogs on leash, but really enjoys off-leash play with other dogs. Out and about, our leash reactivity, and we use a gentle leader and it works great for us, is completely gone, and we have very solid obedience around distractions. Yay. However, I am still having problems with helping the reactivity in specific, specifically around our house. While out in our fenced-in yard or on a, on a leash in our very rural neighborhood, people walk by maybe, fac, maybe five times per week. 
Max, my dog is highly reactive to seeing other dogs and people walking by and barks and lunges like crazy. He goes zero to a hundred, just like the smell of another dog around our house. It seems to be a lot of barrier frustration. I have tried working with him and heal and leave it, which he knows well, and our leash and our gentle leader, but I'm not making any headway and reactivity and unmanageable around our house. How can I work on his reactivity for to make appropriate corrections when he's highly stimulated. So, so this is a, it's a great question. And again, I think the answer you kind of already pointed out is, and you guys know, I, you guys can come in and say, this is an orange peel and it helps me train my dog. I'm like, great, let's peel some freaking oranges. Let's get to it. I don't care. But realistically, I think a lot of times what ends up happening is, is dogs get over a threshold and some equipment isn't going to be able to get that dog back down. So if you're using a gentle leader, it's going to harness a dog's face and basically pull them away from a situation using pressure points, directional pressure, et cetera. And it's, sometimes it's just not enough. Your dog is at 10 and your gentle leader may be at a four and you might need a slip or a prong or something else or a plastic pinch collar to get your dog's attention. So the currency of the dogs, it makes sense because again, like you said, it's barrier frustration. The dog is going to be more protective around the house than it is out for a walk where they're not protective over that environment because it's not theirs. So my recommendation is simply just switch up your equipment. And it sounds like you have a good foundation. So just using a little bit more reinforcement to get your dog's attention and snap them out of that situation. And I bet you will find great success doing that. Great question. Thanks for listening. Amazing podcast, AZ711. This is a very informative and helpful podcast about dog training. He explains training in a way that no one, that anyone can understand it. Check out his YouTube. Also join the No Bad Dog Members Club, um, especially as a dog trainer myself. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, that wasn't a question, so we're going to get into another one. Dogs and male reactivity, AG dogs. Hi, Tom. Love your work and attitude towards dog training. As a dog trainer that's only been in the industry for the past seven months, you have been a huge inspiration and helpful resource as I navigate through dog training in the industry of dog psychology. Thank you. I did have a question. I work at a facility that gets a lot of dogs in and have noticed some dogs have reactivity and fear aggression towards men. We currently have a German Shepherd that I, I can only handle without him trying to bite his owner, specifically him being iffy towards men, and I am the only female trainer here. He is still a nervy dog and has been a little uncomfortable with me handling him at times, but zero aggression. My question is, is how do some dogs develop this specific aggression towards genders? I've met a dog that also is female aggressive, and it's a bad association with the man that creates this fear. Question? Why does it tend to be men if it's gender aggression? It's a great question, and I think you're right. You kind of answered it. Is A lot of times, it, it's a pre-exposed bad um it's a bad uh, experience, right? So maybe this dog was, a, was I don't know. I, we see this a lot with like the Amish German Shepherds. The Amish German Shepherds that come in that were bred in like Pennsylvania by the Amish in a barn, not socialized, don't like men with beards and hats. Go figure. So sometimes, depending on what my beard looks like, they don't like me. So pre-exposure, right? That's how animals are. If they were abused or, or whatever, either verbally or physically or whatever by somebody, looking a certain way, sounding a certain way, smelling a certain way, then they won't like them. They don't trust them, which makes sense. So I would just say that's typically probably what happens um, under those circumstances. So anyway, I hope that that helps all of you. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this podcast. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.